This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. On this week's show, we explore the new post-Article 50 world. Keir Starmer has a brand new six-point test, there's a white paper for the Great Repeal Bill, and Liam Fox is jetting off all over the world to do negotiations which we're not sure he's allowed to do. Welcome back to Last Week in Brexit. As always, we are here in Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce in a post-Article 50 week. As always, I'm joined by Alex Davis and Christian Spence. Hi. Right, gents, where shall we, where shall we kick off in this... Well, is it a, a historic week? I think it is. It's hard to say it isn't, really. Um, of course, the big news of, uh, of this week is... Theresa May sat down. We've got that great photograph of her sat in the cabinet room with the uh, with the Union Jack behind her at the fireplace, um, signing that letter, which will take the take the UK out of the out of the EU. So that was dispatched. Um, our great civil servant for Europe went, took it over personally, um, handed it over to uh, to Donald Tusk, uh, and that's it. So you know everything we've been talking about uh, for the past nine months um, now starts. This is it. We're leaving. Yeah. Did you enjoy the? Contrast between the Theresa May signing of a letter and the Nicola Sturgeon signing of signing of the letter. Yeah, it's all go, isn't it? And there's some great parallels there. I think yes, as uh, as the UK gets ready to to leave the EU, of course, Nicola Sturgeon, the SNPs are now increasingly agitating for uh, for a second independence referendum. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's I guess we'll get into this later, but this is the point where the whole thing starts to become very very political. So Article 50 is submitted now. What is the next step in all this? I don't really think that we know. I think I think uh, we've we've got a first response from from the other side as to how things are going to go. Um, but in terms of the official kind of outline for when the negotiations start and and what happens first, I mean. We're not quite sure. I mean, we've got the EU's response and they're suggesting things like uh, our kind of settlement bill that we might have to pay and like securing the rights of EU citizens and things like that. Mm. They'll be first on their list for things that they want to get sorted. But in terms of the formal the formal negotiation process, I'm not sure we, we're 100% on, on exactly what the process is or when we're going to know any more, to be honest. Is no, it, sorry, Jonathan, it's all, it's all really early days. So there are a couple of things we know, albeit it still leaves things a bit vague. So that's essentially now the ball now moves to the EU's court. 
So we've we've started the firing gun. Um, the EU have come back um, with initially a, a short formal response, but there was also this leaked document mm-hmm. um, from the European Parliament where the Parliament has set out some of its key negotiating objectives and some of its red lines. Uh, Clearly that wasn't meant to be in the public domain just yet Uh, and there's a few interesting things popped out of that that's caused some uh, some, uh, traditional Brits to to perhaps start to to go slightly gaga over the weekend. Um, (laughs) But we'll put that to one side for now. So the next big stage essentially is uh, the European ministers are going to start meeting, Uh, they're going to start drawing up their their tactics. Essentially what needs to happen now is the politicians, the the members of heads of state, as it were, of the members of, uh, of the EU, need to agree a broad negotiating position, which will then be given to the European Commission, the EU civil service, to essentially start to negotiate on their behalf. First EU Council meeting is at the end of April, I think the 29th. That's where we can expect all that to be signed off. So for the minute, as Alex says, it's a bit unclear. We've got kind of three or four weeks of limbo while all that happens. But hopefully by the time we get to the end of April, early May, we should at least know where the red lines for the EU are in all of this. So, so, so as part of Article 50, I mean, it, it states that we're basically not allowed to be in the room whilst that happens. So they go away and kind of come up with their negotiation, negotiating position and then come back to us. But in the meantime, is it right? that we, we are just literally waiting. I mean, I don't know what we're doing in, in, in that meantime. No, I, th- I think that's all we can do now. Um, I mean, no doubt our civil service is, is gearing up and is starting to get ready for, you know... I think in mo- we talked about this in earlier podcasts. Mm. The challenge about keeping all of this secret is mm. actually yeah. both sides mostly know what is in the other side's interest. Yeah. So there's not a lot to keep secret. So we know what some of their big issues are going to be. We know that um, from the EU's position, it keeps talking about this, we are going to have to do the divorce settlement first. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suspect one of the big things we'll be looking at now is actually what does that look like? What do what do we think our our like contingent liabilities financially are? What do we think our share of assets are? So that when all of that starts to become uh, to go into the negotiations in in May, we at least know what numbers we are arguing for. Yeah, it's an incredibly EU position, isn't it? To receive Article 50, then go away and decide what they're going to negotiate about in the future, having known that Article 50 letter was coming, what, for nine months? Yeah, and I think uh, the big challenge here, of course, is I think it was in one of Theresa May's earlier speeches, um, not long after she took over as Prime Minister, she talked about, we are not going to trigger Article 50 until we know exactly what we're going to do and what our position is. Mm. Um, I'm not sure we yet do know what our position is, but that's it, we're off anyway. Now, just going back to your point, Alex, is it right that we sit outside of the other EU 20... Well, there's 28, that we're outside of the 27. Mm-hmm. How do they square the circle with us not being able to take part in European Council meetings? However, we have to still abide by all European legislation law, as we'll get on to, to uh, shortly, we're not even allowed to negotiate with, with the countries. Yeah, I, I don't think they, they're going to try and square it, to be honest. I think it's just the way that Article 50 was set up and written originally was to put put everything basically massively in the EU's favour. Um, so, yeah, any country that was trying to leave would all, all of a sudden find itself on the back foot, I think. was It was kind of written in, in a way which would make it difficult for us to... To get uh, to get on the front foot here, um, but yeah, so we're not allowed to be in the room whilst whilst they come up with that. And I'm not sure if there's a there's a, a, t- a time limit or anything like that. But I mean, I'm guessing we're hoping that I'll come back to us. Uh, fairly quickly. Yeah, well, so we've, we've certainly the next council meeting is the end of this month, so we should know. And also, I think, of course, everyone understands the clock is now ticking. I mean, that's the big thing behind Article Fifty. The, you know, this negotiation 
that this treaty settlement essentially as it will be doesn't work the way most do because it's no. artificially time limited yeah. um, so that is it the clock is now ticking um, 30th of March uh, 2019 is the date we will leave unless anything else happens between now and then um, we've got the challenges of the big political manoeuvres in European member states. So the French presidential election uh, is coming up over the coming months. We've got Germany's presidential uh, election in the autumn. Those things are going to take a lot of time out of that two years. And of course, whatever agreement we come to, if we can get an agreement between the UK and the EU27, that's going to have to go around all 27, well, actually the 28 national parliaments plus some regional parliaments. <laughs> Wallonia in Belgium is going to have a say over this uh, as much as Germany is. Um, and that's going to take some time too. So you know, the artificial cutoff everyone's working to is probably about October 2018 is as late as you've got because you're going to need to leave maybe as much as six months for that ratification process. But we know there's going to be a lot of division on the European side. It also seems there's quite a lot of division on the UK side. We've had a white paper and also we've had some walkouts on select committees too. Yes, we've had a white paper last week on the Great Repeal Bill um, and it, it, it was kind of, it wasn't the bill itself, it was a draft and I think some lawyers going through it on Twitter and things like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not a legal expert, so I was mostly following uh, analysis from, from lawyers and, and, and those guys on, on Twitter. Um, but I think the response from them seems to be that it's a, a kind of step in the right direction, but it's still a bit lightweight at this point on detail. Mm. Um, no, you're right, it, you know, it comes back, the whole document's written around those 12 points that Theresa May announced in her speech back in Lancaster House in uh, in January um, and it's I think there's still a lot of kind of underestimating just how difficult this is going to be essentially we need to bring over tens of thousands of laws and regulations um, into our own uh, into our own legal system that's going to take some real time um, I mean, sort of doable if everyone keeps their act together. The point is, of course, is again, where does the politics come? You know, we can e- I can easily imagine a scenario where varying different of MPs of different groups kind of say, well, actually, let's not just bring it over as it is. While we're bringing it over, let's mm-hmm. let's try and change this. Yeah. And let's even do that. And of course, if you get into that kind of territory, you'll never hit the deadline. So yeah, I mean, we've been we've said for a while that it's it's called the Great Repeal Bill, but it's a bit of a silly name really because it's mostly going to be bringing things over rather Great than incorporation re- bill. Yeah, ra- yeah rather exactly. than repealing them. Certainly for. for a while. I mean, now there's been people suggesting that we need to have sunset clauses on the regulations which come through, which basically mean that you set, let's say, a three-year timer on each piece mm. of each reg, uh, and then if it gets to the end of that three-year timer, you either need to scrap it or change it by that time. So they've kind of got a ticking time bomb that's type element to the regulations in order to make it an actual repeal bill. Um, that, I mean, that's what some people have been suggesting. Um, but I, I, th- I think... Whilst you could suggest that it's a bit light on detail, I, I at least think it's a good indication that the government understands the scale of the problem. And I think an- another thing that it's potentially... Another thing I think it's kind of revealed, I mean, one of the big points in it was that in terms of the interpretation of EU laws and regulations uh, post-Brexit, um, the, the legal interpretation of many of these laws are, is going to be based on the European Court of Justice's interpretation uh, before we exited, so it won't be down to us to, to reinterpret those laws later on. Um, and it, it kind of made the point to me that if we do end up with this kind of no-deal situation, what the situation that we all find ourselves in isn't, isn't one uh, that people think where we're going to have this massive bonfire of regulations because under, under no deal, essentially, we will still be subjected to all of the EU's regulation because that's kind of the idea of the Great Repeal Bill. But then we'll also have to face tariffs and other things like that. 
Yeah, it works in both worlds. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You could almost say that. Well, yeah. It, it's funny you mention um, the Great Repeal Bill, Great Incorporation Bill, which, which, whichever way you want to look at it. Only this morning, did you see the thing about off-road vehicles needing to have third-party insurance and everyone's up in arms because now we're going to have to incorporate that into? No, <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that, but I can, I can, I know sort of vaguely what you're talking about. And this is the challenge. You see, is the whole <laughs> debate here. I mean, one of the lines we've used since since, my God, a year last January and all this kicked off uh, was this thing about, you know, if you're talking about tariffs, you're not talking about trade. Mm-hmm. If you're just talking about trade, you're not talking about our relationship with the EU. Um, you know, it's not just a trade agreement. Um, it is a full-blown single market. And that, you know, it, it has penetrated over the last 40, 43 years every single aspect of the way the UK's regulatory system runs. Um, so people say, oh, wait, it's okay. We can leave without a deal because all that means is we'll have to supply documents for our exports that's a bit tedious isn't it and there might be tariffs while they're mostly small yeah those things certainly would be the implications of no deal but as would our air traffic control is no longer registered to work under eu law Uh, we're outside of flight agreements um our our security documentation services our data sharing agreements just etc 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 you know the design of rear light clusters on cars and trucks you know (laughs) all of this stuff at the moment is sat under eu regulation not uk um i think people have missed just how entwined um the two things have become over the years well not to worry because finally we've got an opposition that has done some work and Keir Stottman has got a test has anyone seen this test and what do we think about it the six tests that Labour have to uh, that say the deal has to deliver um, I mean it's a huge challenge and I think in many ways it's it's probably indicative of the challenge, the, the position that Labour has found itself in over the past yeah. few years, as it's it's lost, it's clearly lost control of being an opposition um, at this stage. Its overall policy, despite these six tests, its overall policy on Europe is not clear. Um, certainly for me, um, you know, there's a challenge that you know we've seen we've seen Corbyn and other you know major members of the Labour Party talking about we will fight the you know the Tories hard Brexit, we will do our best to shape it. And it's like well yes, at the same time as you just let all of the bills go through, you didn't really fight and look for amendments in the in the early stages. So it's not clear where they stand. Um, some of the tests are kind of motherhood and apple pie. So you, does it ensure a strong and collaborative future relationship? Well, I would say yeah. well, I hope so because that <laughs> appears to be the whole point of doing all this. The really odd one, and um, and they were caught on this on the weekend media. Does it deliver the exact same benefits as we currently have as members of the single market? Yeah. It cannot possibly, and we have known that since day one. And to put that as a fundamental test means it's guaranteed to fail. Um, so I really don't stand, understand what it's all about, to be honest. Does this make you think it's more about politics than actually safeguarding Brexit or holding the government to account? It's a test which is impossible to pass. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Um, I mean, well, some of them are said, you know, strong and collaborative future, great. Does it deliver the same benefits? No, it won't. It cannot possibly do that, and we've always known that, so that one will always fail. And then the other ones are all sort of slightly vague. Does it ensure fair management of migration? Does it defend rights and protections to prevent a race to the bottom? Does it protect national security? Does it deliver for all regions? Well, maybe. Who's, who's the judge of these things? That's it, yeah. It's yeah. all, it's, yeah, as you said, no, you're right, Jonathan. The problem is now we've gone through kind of the technical stuff. 
we've spent that last sort of you know 15 months going through the you know the legal and just as far as we can be the, the the balanced and truthful statements of fact in all of this now the politics has been unleashed yes um, and this is you know I think this is certainly I hope it's not where we're going to be for the next two years but I suspect for the next six or nine months you know all of the politicians are going to have to get this out of their system it, I'll just jump in it's, it's crazy how since Article 50 was invoked like every little thing that the government's done has been jumped on so massively by the media I mean just the, the whole kind of security element of the letter was, was jumped on and pounced on by all the headlines yeah, what was the um, it's not like 12 security guards on, on a Eurostar I mean, it, 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 essentially, uh, it, in, in the Article 50 letter, th- there was a suggestion, ba- essentially, that if we don't end up cooperating, that there would be some kind of fallout in terms of security cooperation as oh, well. Oh, sorry, you're talking, not the actual physical security on the train? Oh, no, 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 okay. no, 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 no. Sorry, so, yeah, so, that was the interesting part to me. So, so, so this is, yeah, after the letter was delivered and, and people kind of analysed it, it, it the, the headlines were, were essentially that we were threatening the EU by withdrawing our kind of security cooperation and kind of data cooperation with them. Um, and, and I just kind of think it was all just overblown really, really quickly. And um, I mean, it, people were suggesting that it was a threat and we were saying, you know, if you don't give us a good deal, maybe we'll pull out on security. But I think what actually was happening was Theresa May was pointing out the, the reality that if we do end up not cooperating, then there is kind of no legal precedent for where that security cooperation goes anymore. Yes. Um, I don't think it was a threat that we're going to pull any of it away. Um, but yeah, so it was it was jumped all over that, that we were threatening the EU with our, with our security forces. Yeah, it was a strange day because, of course, you had the, the spectre of Donald Tusk and our ambassador trying to look very statesmanlike, and then within hours there were political statements and you know yeah. everything else that, that, that went along. It's almost like they couldn't contain themselves. Yeah, I mean, just on that security point, I mean, as I said, the headlines jumped all over it, but then Tusk came out just the next day, I think, and said he doesn't see it as a threat either. He kind of gets the gets the what the point was. Mm. Um, yeah, but it's 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 crazy how it's just gone so overboard with the media kind of hysteria already, yeah. jumping on every little point and trying to trying to turn it into a massive issue. Yeah, that's it. I mean, on that security thing, it goes to that point of the things that get lost so you, you know I can't the exact wording in Theresa May's letter but it was that basically you know if we end up with no no deal then the security you know what what happens to the security it's a good question because the way it's the whole point of this why it's why we said from the start no deal is a crazy position to be in because actually the way we share data the way we look to cooperate on security and on uh, moving criminals around for, for extradition to other countries courts is all in the treaties and therefore if there is no deal there is no legal structure under which that continues it's not that there's no will for it to continue but the legal framework which currently mm-hmm, allows yeah. it would stop um, so again it's yeah move past the rhetoric and try and keep focused on the facts here yeah the interesting part on this is I mean the EU is fundamentally a political movement rather than a, a financial or trade movement I wonder if the politics are going to actually overtake the actual interests of the country as the EU tries to almost maintain itself yeah, and I guess this is where we come on to the you know the big news over over the weekend, which is you know we all need to start getting ready for being drafted up to go and defend Gibraltar. Um, <laughs> well, we'll come to that uh, later, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a very but it is that that's it. This has just exploded. It's almost like you know the I mean, I just talking to Alex before we came down here. You know, it's like the you know the, one of the big lines that the Remain side have used through all this is actually the EU has been amazing at protecting Europe and it's kept the security cap on because mm-hmm. basically it stopped people fighting. And at the first 
worst point you know, within four days of the first country sending an Article 50 notification. That's it. You know, there are soft messages about land grabs and how we can go back to the way we do things. It's, yeah, the politics is now rife. I mean, it'd be a disaster. Where would the gambling industry go? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, not to be deterred, Liam Fox is on a plane somewhere. I believe there's going to be a lot of announcements. The <laughs> Department for International Trade. Department for International Trade. But it's unclear whether he's, whether he's even allowed to do this. Yeah, uh, this is this has been quite an issue for quite some time, and I, I think it's kind of escalated a little bit with the the Article 50 uh, letter and the EU's response. I mean, we've been saying for a long time that. We, tec- we technically, technically are not allowed to sign trade deals um, under the EU's common commercial policy. So essentially that's the piece of law which says that which they need to negotiate on behalf of their members essentially. Which is one of, one, of the, one of the whole reasons behind Brexit is that we can get out and we can do our own trade deals. That's the thing that's been, that has been preventing us from doing that this whole time. Um, but then the question came uh, following the referendum as to whether we can start to negotiate these deals and then potentially sign them now. Now, uh, as long as they don't actually come into effect until after we've officially left, mm. um, and there are lots of people who are basically who have been suggesting for a very long time that that's totally a totally reasonable thing to, for us to be doing. Um, but then, one of the things that's come out of the uh, the European Council's response to Article 50 is that they don't see that as the case, and they don't think that we should be able to have uh, parallel negotiations uh, with the EU and also at the same time with other countries. Um, but in terms of the, the legalities of it, I'm not sure. And I think one of the interesting points is what is what is Liam Fox doing if that's not allowed? Because um, yeah. you know he, he's supposedly been jetting off around the world, speaking to all these countries. And we've actually had some announcements. Um, there was one a few weeks back. Uh, the one of the trade ministers for New Zealand said that Liam Fox was over there and they had very productive talks. And essentially that Australia and New Zealand were, were going to be there, ready to sign on the day. Um, but you know the EU's position seems to be that we're not. Actually, can't, they don't want us to do that, so I'm, I'm kind of wondering how that squares up. It is odd, and it's, it's one of, you know it's one of these many things we've discovered in uh, since doing all this research over the past year or more. Is actually when you look into you know a lot of these issues are highly technical, so you look to legal opinion to try and get a view on this, and you actually see the legal opinion is split. Really, um, and it becomes this huge challenge. Um, you know, and it's something that's you know so sadly. I think you know the, the Leave side have talked about this and the challenge of EU law is actually it appears we don't really know what the EU law is. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact legal opinion is split on this um, suggests it's all a bit blurry. So, as Alex has said, yeah, we're, we're signatories to Common Commercial Policy, um, which essentially says we allow the EU to negotiate trade deals on our behalf. But the other thing the EU will stress, of course, is we might have sent Article 50, but we are still a member of the European Union at the moment, which means we are obligated to uh, to perform under its treaties. And that means that we should be looking for the best interests of the Union itself. Uh, and I guess they could easily make an argument that if we're trying to do trade deals which will preferentially um, support the UK's economy outside of the, of the EU, that actually we're not you know, we're not following our obligations to uh, to perform as a single economic union. So it's yeah, no, not complicated times. I do need to know this, but I do wonder what's going to happen to the British trade negotiators that currently work for the EU, because there was this whole issue about well, Britain doesn't have anyone who can negotiate a trade deal mm-hmm. uh, because we haven't done one since the sixties or yep. you know um, or some such thing. 
But on top of that, we can't go out and just employ people from Australia or Canada or the EU because it's sensitive stuff. You need U- well, UK nationals. Appar- apparently, that's not the case and that we have actually been lent loads of trade negotiators. Is uh, that right? Um, yeah, I think I think it was, again, Australia and New Zealand and, and Canada. I think it, there was suggestions very early on that they would lend us some of their capacity, essentially. Yeah, I, I did hear that they offered to lend us negotiators who had... Um, Experience with 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 TPP, mm-hmm. TPP, and also the Canadian trade deal. Yes, do you know yeah. any um, any of that went ahead? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't know whether they're there, but I mean the thing is because there's a, there's other trade, there's the there's UK EU trade that needs to be dealt with in this mm-hmm. period as well, even before we start to look at a uh, look at third parties. And I think the challenge with kind of third party trade deals is. It feels implausible that we could negotiate a trade deal with a third country, let's say Australia, mm. um, in advance, even though we don't sign it until we leave. Because actually, the contents of that trade deal are going to be heavily affected by what our relationship is mm. between the UK and the EU. Um, I can't believe Australia is just going to sign up to that without knowing what rights there might be for, for goods to flow freely between the UK and the EU, particularly on things like rules of origin, which would heavily I mean, affect, yeah, th- th- if, uh, they, if they don't know what our status is going to be come, come 2019, then how can, how can you make an arrangement on this? No, yeah, exactly, yeah. that's the bit I well, don't I, I think it's even more complex, because uh, it sounds like America wants to pull out of the, of the Pacific trade, trade, yeah, yeah. trade deal, which means it might not be in existence anyway. So you go from a situation where we're the, essentially with the second biggest economy in the EU, Go over to the to a different trade deal where we could be the third biggest, but actually it doesn't look like that trade deal is going to be all that straightforward anyhow. No, I mean the, the, the I mean the, the American situation is kind of confusing everything now, um, so we don't know where that's going. Um, so the the European the EU the CETA deal the EU and Canada deal is is signed but not in yet. Uh, but you said, of course, that will have huge impacts on uh, on North American trade generally. Mm. Uh, so we said, you know, TTIP's dead in the water. Trump's already killed the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, he's now looking at what he can do to NAFTA. Um, all these things will have effects. So even though they're not sort of directly, sort mm. of directly connected to what we're talking about, they will have an impact on all of that. Um, and it's hard to imagine the EU, you know, or us really cracking those big trade deals with other places without knowing what that relationship might look like in the future. Well, let's just stick on the subject of negotiations, but move on slightly. It would seem the EU have decided that there's going to be a negotiation about the divorce bill before there's going to be any negotiation on trade, and there will not be concurrent negotiations on both trade and, and, and the separation. Which seems like a big ask when you've only got two years. Yeah, and and of course our side, um, both when Theresa May, yes, but particularly David Davis, have been really firm on this, saying they really, really want to see those two things happen side by side. Mm. Um, the EU is holding out, and of course I think this is, you know, the EU knows this is its trump card. Um, you know, the, uh, the way Article 50 has been drafted and the entire process really puts all the cards in the EU's hands here. Um, because of this time limit. So essentially they can do as they wish. They know we have to get something away uh, within the next two years. Um, so, yeah, where do we go from here? I mean, this, the divorce bill, you know, 50 billion euros uh, is the number that's sort of being floated around from, from the EU side. We've had some of our ministers say we're not paying a penny more than 3 billion. Um, mm. That's probably optimistic, to say the least. Um, for me, I mean, in the longer run of things... You know, part of me wants kind of a, a nice argument, and I know that's not very helpful in raw political situations, that actually says, look, you know, the UK is a good country, we honour the debts we've incurred, 
um, we'll move on and get those done just as a kind of sheer point of principle, uh, particularly at a time when we're about to be, you know, we're sending Liam Fox around the world to sign deals. We need to show countries that actually we'll abide by them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that aspect. The other one is actually there are clearly some contingent liabilities for us. There are the pensions of EU staff. There are funds we've said we'll contribute to. There are also assets we own. So, of course, you know, the UK has got significant funds in the European Investment Bank. It's also, of course, contributed to all of the the capital infrastructure of the EU um, itself. So there's some numbers to kind of knock off and come back on that. But I would hope that we can get this done really, really quickly. Yeah, I mean, the, the settlement bill that EU suggested that that needs to be the first thing on the table. Um, but it's even that's going to be massively complicated. There was a, a report which came out last week, uh, I think it was the Bruegel Group, which is a, a think tank which is in Brussels, I think, and has really close links to, to, the, to the Union and the European Council. Um, and e- even they suggested uh, a potential range for the bill of 25 to 65 billion. <laughs> I thought that was quite, quite a large range and yeah, it's quite a large. leaves quite a lot of wiggle room, you know. Well, a billion here and a billion there before you know you're talking about real money. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one because when you're talking about a divorce, for want of a better word, of course we know there are debts that we need to pay. Does the, does the UK have a genuine claim to say, well, actually, you know, we own part of this, this institution, we're going to need some sort of payment for that because, of course, we have assets. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's going to be the challenge now is negotiating those two sides. So clearly we have been one of, you know, we've been a net contributor um, to the EU for not all of our membership, but certainly for the, the sort of the second half of it. Um, we've paid a lot in. We will have, you know, part financed some of the EU buildings, etc. So there is all of that. I said capital in the in the investment bank. All that will need to be offset. Um, but I suspect that's going to be quite an accounting challenge just to pull all of that together. Mm. Is there any studies on what the effect will be on the EU when the UK stops paying in? Because we're one of the largest largest contributors, in fact, second largest, I, I believe. Second largest contributor, so just over, yes, not quite the 350 million a week that was banded around, but 250 million a week is a, is a reasonable number. Um, so yeah, just north of 10 billion uh, sterling a year into the EU budget. So that's gonna be a big hole. Um, there's no doubt about that. And so whilst we're the second largest contributor, those smaller than us are much smaller than us. So essentially you see Germany at the top, us just behind, and then a long tail of small contributions. So, you know, certainly you're starting to hear noises, particularly from the, uh, what we call the A8 accession, so the 2004 countries, Eastern Europe essentially, when they joined, they are generally worried. You know, the net recipients uh, of shared EU funding uh, are wondering exactly what will happen to them once the, the 10 billion from the UK is pulled away. Well, presumably, Germany and France will have to foot the bill. Yeah, and that'll be an interesting conversation with German elections coming up this year, you see, and this is that whole challenge. Um, mm. You know, the EU is not, you know, whilst this is a very difficult negotiation for both sides, the EU is not in a good place. Um, you don't read about it much in the UK press at the minute, but Greece is still in uh, fiscal turmoil. We're in the last stages of debate as to whether the IMF will pull out of supporting Greece. Um, if it does that, then there are big implications for Germany, particularly uh, as the major underwriter of their of the debt that's been issued there recently. Um, so there's all of this going on, you know. So in that year when Germany is going to the elections, do they want to be in a position to say, well, actually, the you know north of 100 billion euros we've given to Greece, we're going to have to write off. Oh, and by the way, we need a bit more money because the lack of EU contributions means we're going to have to stump it up. That's going to put you know the German 
German politicians in a difficult place. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, as always in this stuff, there's no easy answer. Right, gents, well, I think that we shall leave it there for this week. Right, gents, I think we shall leave it there. Uh, Christian, where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at GMCC Research. And for all the questions going to Alex, we can find you? At GMCC underscore Alex. And, of course, you can find us at Pearsons underscore FSB. Uh, we'll see you next week, but in the words of Donald Tusk, we miss you already. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.